0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Welcome to Squawk Box, here are your headlines. President Trump is set to meet Chinese Vice Premier Li He. Amid hopes Washington and Beijing are closing in on a trade deal. As White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow says progress has been made on major sticking points like ip theft and forced technology transfer i think the chinese have acknowledged these
2: problems for the first time they were in denial
1: uk
0: lawmakers narrowly passed legislation to mandate a brexit delay as compromised cross-party talks between prime minister Theresa may and labor leader jeremy corbyn are set to continue today we had a discussion and uh, there hasn't been as much change as I expected but we are continuing to have some discussions tomorrow morning uh, to explore some of the technical issues surrounding it um, and the meeting was useful but uh, inconclusive.
3: Former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn is arrested again as Tokyo prosecutors level fresh financial misconduct allegations against the embattled auto boss. And Tesla's first quarter deliveries dropped 31%
1: as the electric car maker struggles to ship its Model 3 to Europe and China, while CEO Elon Musk prepares to face off against US regulators in court.
3: Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. We are coming off of a moderately positive session on Wall Street yesterday. Markets were boosted by optimism around U.S.-China trade. As we just mentioned there in the headlines, a few new developments over the last 24 hours. We had Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, weighing in, saying that good headway has been made on talks. He said that we may see talks extend beyond these three days in Washington. Uh, And overnight, it emerged that President Trump is set to meet with Chinese Vice President Liu He in Washington. So altogether, providing a boost to markets. As you can see beside me, all three major indices ended in slightly positive territory. The Dow up about 15 basis points, the S&P 500 up about two-tenths of a percent, and the NASDAQ up about 60 basis points. This adds to a relatively, strong week thus far. All three of those indices are trading up to the tune of 1 to just over 2% over the week. Now let's take a look at the Forex markets uh, and see how things are shaping up currency-wise. Sterling has been a key focus for investors this week. Brexit here in Europe, a large development of course. Right now trading up about 8 BIPs uh, this morning above that 131 level. It has been trading higher over the last few days with some uh, encouraging developments uh, in terms of potentially reaching a compromise, but still, of course, a huge amount of uncertainty there. The euro trading up a touch as well versus the dollar, about five basis points. And overall, coming into today, the dollar index was really little change on the week. Now, let's take a look at oil markets. Earlier in the week, we were talking about the rally we'd seen in Brent and WTI. Now, as you can see, we are seeing a little bit of a retreat there. WTI trading down about 18 basis points right now. Yesterday, we saw Brent and WTI pull back a touch. This came as a surpri- surprising data showed that U.S inventories had actually uh, risen. And this, of course, comes after that rally we saw earlier in the week. So still on the week, WTI and Brent higher, but not quite as much as we were seeing earlier on. Finally, let's take a look at the overnight markets in Asia. A bit of a mixed picture here. The Shanghai Composite up about uh, 60 basis points or so. That's the best performer of the bunch. But a little bit of wait and see, pause for breath perhaps. Remember earlier this week, very strong gains on the back of that surprisingly robust China uh, factory data uh, and o- overnight, of course, a lot of the focus on this U.S.-China trade developments. Karen?
1: Juliana, thank you. Well, here we are in April still talking about trade. And uh, a fresh round of U.S.-China trade talks has kicked off in D.C. with top Trump advisor Larry Kudlow signaling Beijing has begun to soften its stance on previously intractable issues. Emily Tan found this report from Hong Kong.
3: The latest sign of progress in the Sino-U.S. trade dispute, Vice Premier Liu Hua, who is in Washington for the ninth round of trade talks, is scheduled to meet with President Donald Trump in the White House. This meeting is expected to take place at 4.30 p.m. Thursday, Eastern Daylight Time in the Oval Office. Now, This comes as White House top economic advisor Larry Kudlow says trade talks are making good headway, although they're not there yet. The talks are taking place at the USTR office. Here is Larry Kudlow.
1: I think the Chinese have acknowledged these problems for the first time. They were in denial and uh, all of them, all of them. The IP theft, the forced transfer, the lack of ownership, the cyber hacking, they've acknowledged it. Before that they wouldn't acknowledge it.
3: These issues have been at the heart of the U.S. argument and have never been covered before. Kudlow also revealed that Huawei Technologies had not come up during trade talks. It's been viewed as a legal matter so far. The trade talks could extend beyond the three scheduled days. Back to you guys.
1: Joining us now, Christopher Smart, head of macroeconomic and geopolitical research at Behrings. Christopher, welcome to the program. Nice to see you today. Nice to see you. So it's quite interesting where China has now started to reflect some of the concerns that the United States have had for many years, uh, acknowledging, hearing, understanding what those issues are. It's so almost straight out of a, a Harvard Law negotiating tactic, uh, acknowledge some of the issues, which builds trust, and then you can move forward. What do you make of the turn of events?
2: Well, I, I think over the years, if you've been following Chinese-U.S. negotiations closely, they've actually acknowledged a lot of these issues before in different ways at different times. And in fact, the Trump administration is trying to secure much of what President Bush, much of what President uh, Obama has been trying to secure. I think what they've done is try to bring a lot of focus to the issue right now. Uh, uh, They have certainly gotten the Chinese attention and it feels as if we're circling in on a deal.
3: In in terms of the tariffs, one of the big outstanding questions at the moment is whether the U.S. would actually roll back the tariffs if we do see a resolution. Do you think that the U.S. is inclined to do that? Are they going to keep the tariffs in place as a lever to try to help with the enforcement of China's adherence to the deal?
2: That's what they're currently saying. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is a tremendously transparent government, but ultimately much of what goes on right now these days we know is in the president's own decision making. Uh, And what he believes he can live with is this is a you know, this is a signature issue for him and Figuring out what it is he can sell back home once he comes to a deal with President Xi Um, It seems as if from the Chinese point of view They're not really asking for much in terms of changing the way the United States does business They're really asking for tariff relief and so for them to make any serious commitments without some thing in return I think is hard to hard to imagine right now.
1: Let's talk about President Trump a little bit more in this mix because what is now being discussed is a basic a commitment, and this will be around the increase of uh, the purchase of American products, agriculture, mm-hmm. energy, manufactured products. And a time frame has now been mooted, a six-year time frame, to meet those commitments until 2025. We start crunching the numbers out. That's beyond any second term that President Trump might be able to secure. So if he deals with this issue, and he only deals with it once, and then it would be up to the history books to judge him, not voters down the track.
2: Well, I think that's an important point to look at it from that direction. I think the other side to look at it is you have to sort of look at the numbers from the Chinese point of view. The Chinese economy is still growing it's still growing at a pretty good clip, even if it is decelerating, it's still growing at five or six percent. And so their demand for U.S. goods is going to grow anyway. So they would probably be buying an increasing number, a decreasing number of uh, U.S. exports in any case, with or without this deal. Um, I think the broader issue is to look beyond any particular deal and to look at the relationship as it evolves, because we're going to be bumping into one another, the US and China, over many years and many decades. And it's really figuring out how to manage the relationship rather than any particular number on how much is bought or a particular change in this or that law. How are we going to live to lear- learn to live with them as a much larger player in the global economy, in term- in, particularly in, in financial markets, where they are not just a big trading company country right now, but their intru- their influence in financial markets is increasingly important uh, to the global economy.
3: now in terms of Trump, uh, he's also trying to satisfy and assist the businesses in the US who've been hit so negatively by the trade war. Do you think that the businesses are going to pressure Trump enough or they're gonna be enough of a driver to get him to agree to something now uh, because he's risking the, a, a continued backlash for them or perhaps more of a backlash from them?
2: Well, so far they haven't been very successful. Uh, he, has, he has stuck to his guns. He has uh, continued uh, to, to sort of narrow in on a particular kind of a deal uh, with some, as you say, subsidies for farmers in particular um i think uh again this is a signature issue for him he will want to be able to deliver something as we start talking more and more about the next presidential campaign uh and the the question will be as people look at it whether this is something that is substantial whether this is something that the chinese have been committing to for many years anyway and we're making incremental progress on um or whether in fact the tariffs you know have delivered something that wouldn't have happened without them
1: I want to just come back to some of the points you raised around the relationship evolution and and you singled out financial markets, but you didn't single out tech or telecommunications. And one issue that uh, the US and China have been bumping up against each other on has been 5G and Huawei's involvement in the rollout of uh, 5G infrastructure. Since then, it feels like the president has been talking about competition at home, which is uh, probably quite welcome for the telecommunications market. But do you think there is a fundamental issue? Because it doesn't seem like Huawei is going to be tackled in these trade talks.
2: No, I think that's that's the other thing that it gives me hope that there will be a deal because both sides seem to be focused very narrowly on the issues on the table and not trying to bring in other side issues that would make things more complicated right now. Um, Huawei is a a very important issue. I think primarily from the U.S. point of view, it is a security, a national security issue and uh, sanctions particularly related to Iran. Uh, Obviously, there are commercial and um, competitive overlays to the Huawei and 5G issue, but I think it's particularly figuring out how to deal with U.S. national security concerns and European national security concerns.
3: All right, we'll leave it there for now, but stay with us. Christopher Smart, head of macroeconomic and geopolitical research at Bearings. Rising trade tensions could threaten global investment growth, according to the IMF. In new research released as part of its April World Economic Outlook, the body said emerging markets were particularly vulnerable to rising machinery costs as a result of supply chain disruption and market distortion. And on the economic calendar today, German factory orders and construction PMI are in focus after a series of weak readings from Europe's biggest economy. ECB Minutes will shed some light on the bank's decision to announce its third TLTRO program and push back its forward guidance on a rate hike. And then stateside, we've got jobless claims, which will give us an early indication of what to expect from tomorrow's non-farm payrolls report. And coming up on the show, opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn says cross party talks with the Prime Minister were helpful but inconclusive. The latest from Westminster after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune into our very own
1: podcast. Head to CNBC.com, iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our podcast listeners out there, stick around
3: for more. Welcome back to the program. Well, let's get right to one of our top stories today, and that is Brexit. British lawmakers have approved legislation that would push Prime Minister Theresa May to seek a Brexit delay in a bid to prevent a no-deal scenario. Let's take a look at Sterling. As you can see, they're trading a touch higher today, about nine basis points at 131.69. It has been trending higher over the course of the week as it looks as though Theresa May is at least seeking a compromise with the opposition, still a huge number of of open questions and still far away from finding a resolution. Well, for more, let's get out to Willem, who is in Westminster again this morning, been following this all week. Willem, yesterday, Corbyn met with Theresa May. What did we hear from that meeting?
0: Well, they essentially both sides saying that the talks were constructive but inconclusive. Their negotiating teams kept at it till quite late into the evening, and the two will be sitting down once again with their teams later on today this was jeremy corbyn's assessment of those discussions i want the government to understand that the house does not support the deal that she's agreed she's got to come up even at this very late stage with something that is acceptable to the house which does move in the direction that i've said that the labor party wants in order to reach an agreement with the eu the dangers of crashing out with no deal are
2: very very serious very serious indeed and they have to be avoided
0: uh, someone who said some very similar things yesterday in an interview, that was Bank of England Governor Mark Carney. He said the risks around no deal were, quote, alarmingly high. Now we've seen two government ministers resign from the Conservative-led government yesterday in response to Theresa May's decision to work with Jeremy Corbyn. On the Labour side, though, it's important to watch what they decide to say during these compromise talks, because one thing that Jeremy Corbyn's under pressure to try and do, and he said he explored this as an option with Prime Minister Theresa May yesterday, is to push for a confirmatory referendum, essentially, putting whatever deal they come up with to a public vote. It's something we know he's been very unhappy about trying to do in the past. But that is part of the Labour Party's promises to its members. So that's going to be very interesting to watch how that plays out. And in terms of the action in Parliament, of course, very separately to that, in some ways, We saw lawmakers yesterday try to once again force through another series of votes on alternative options to Theresa May's deal. That was very narrowly defeated. The tie between the two sides fighting over that was actually broken by the Speaker of the House of Commons. And then another incredibly narrow vote yesterday was around some legislation to try and force the government to seek a Brexit extension. That is still awaiting approval from the upper chamber here, the House of Lords that could come as soon as today. But that again squeaked through by a single vote. Just once again an indication of how split Parliament is over some of these incredibly divisive issues, guys.
1: I want to ask you about the mental ang- anguish for uh, Jeremy Corbyn at this point, because it does strike me that there might be risk for him politically by having these discussions with Theresa May and signing up for a Brexit deal. And, and while there may be fatigue out there in the electorate right now for any Brexit delay, we know that once we are past a crisis, recriminations can be very quick to, to flow. So what are the risks for, for Jeremy Corbyn around Brexit at this point?
0: Well, I, I guess you can look at this from the perspective of what happens next in terms of his leadership. If this compromise deal works, if things turn out smoothly, then the Conservatives can claim a victory can say, you know, we are the party of compromise. In some ways, we've been able to find some consensus with our opponents, we behave like the grown ups in the room. If things go south, then the Conservative Party can turn around and say, you know, Theresa May, we should never have trusted that man, Corbyn. He was the problem here. There was no way that people around the country, specifically our members, were going to be happy with this course of action. And you see already some pressure inside Corbyn's team, his shadow foreign secretary, essentially his person focused on foreign affairs, Emily Thornbury, we've spoken to here on a number of occasions. She's saying that the party has mandated this idea of a second referendum, putting this idea back to a vote publicly. And she's trying to pressure Corbyn, it seems, into pushing that through with Theresa May. Again, that is something that ordinary Labour supporters have been very much in favour of. The challenge for the party throughout this process has been a lot of the MPs may have voted Remain themselves, but they come from constituencies around the UK where the majority of their constituents voted to leave the european union and that is a huge source of tension inside the parliamentary labour party
1: uh, willem it sounds like it is a lose-lose for corbyn and lose for Theresa may the only winner this morning seems to be sterling which has marched up to the 131 handle versus the dollar oh, meantime bank of england governor mark carney says the central bank will do what it can in the event of a no-deal brexit but warned its options are limited in an interview with Sky News, Samantha Washington uh, was the reporter. Carney described the risk of a no-deal scenario as, quote, alarmingly high. He also rejected suggestions the UK leave the EU on WTO terms and maintain zero tariffs.
2: We can't uh, get a single more lorry through, um, uh, through the port of Dover. Others can uh, help to affect that, but we can't. Um, and nor can we fundamentally change the economics of a business um, uh, in Scotland that sells to the European Union at present on a tariff-free basis, um, where its product uh, standard is instantly recognised, so it has frictionless trade with Europe. If overnight it has to pay a large tariff on those goods, which it will, because Europe will flip to WTO, and there's forget the fiction that that won't happen. About Article 24? Absolute nonsense.
1: Christopher Smart staying with us this morning, head of macroeconomic and geopolitical research at Baring's. Uh, Christopher, we're still talking about Brexit. We thought we might have it wrapped up by the 29th of last month. But, but here we go in the countdown to what could still be a hard Brexit, despite uh, many parliamentarians actually agreeing they do not want that to happen and they want an extension to the April 12 deadline. What are the risks at this point? Because we still need the Europeans to agree and there's no actual Brexit deal that anybody can sign up to down at Westminster at this stage.
2: I think that's the thing many of us are beginning to realize, uh, particularly as an American watching this from afar, the, as you say, we thought this would be done by now. We thought there'd be clarity by now. And I think what we're increasingly coming to terms with is no matter what agreement is agreed right now, this is going to be a long-term process because Britain is so divided internally, there will be many years of interpreting the agreement, interpreting the regulations that define the agreement. Which means I think for investors and for businesses a lot more uncertainty ahead in terms of how they plan their investments and how they plan to organize their supply chains.
1: It starts to, to give us the impression that it's going to be a little bit like the financial crisis, that you know, 10 years on after the event we'll still be talking about it and we'll still be talking about changes. What is it actually going to mean for the UK? I mean we haven't even seen trade deals uh, being uh, struck yet. There's still a fair way out in the long grass before I, that even happens.
2: I think it'll mean um, a messier period, a more expensive place to do business a more complicated place to do business because there will be new rules and some new tariffs in place in different parts of the economy. And where those will be are hard to tell right now um life will go on things will you know people will pass the border goods will pass the border avocados will arrive from mexico (laughs) have no fear (laughs) (laughs) Um, but (laughs) i think it is uh it is a period of broader uncertainty and what you will see is probably a decline a further decline in business investment in the uk because the uncertainty will remain so high again even if something is agreed over the next few weeks or months it is clear from an outsider's point of view that the british electorate is divided and we don't know what this government or the next government or the government thereafter will decide on this issue.
3: In terms of the the spillover impact of what's happening in the UK to Europe, we've got the European elections coming up in May, and in a lot of ways this will be a referendum on the status quo in several countries. How do you expect what's happening here to influence the voters in other European countries?
2: Well, I think if anything, Brexit has brought Europe together. Uh, They have negotiated more or less with a single voice, They have shown that their institutions through Brussels can work to negotiate through this agreement. I mean, it's not hard, frankly, to compare well to the disarray on the British side. Um, But I think they have shown that those institutions can work. And I think the, the notion that there will be a line at the door of other countries following Britain out of the European Union is clearly not the case right now. In fact, there are others trying to sign up to join.
3: Just broadening it out to the economic state of Europe, this week we've got a few indications of how the economy is doing on a more forward-looking basis in the form of services and manufacturing PMIs. And the data was really bad on the manufacturing front, actually better on the services front yesterday than the market was expecting. Number one, do you think we've seen the bottom in Europe? And number two, how much of the weakness do you think is cyclical versus structural?
2: Well, I think a lot of it is cyclical. That's what we've seen uh, over the end of last year, concerns about the cycle getting towards its later stages. What we've also seen, though, is central banks responding. We've had the Fed turn a little more dovish. We've had the Chinese government, both on the fiscal side and the monetary side, turn more dovish. And obviously, the ECB has been much more supportive in its rhetoric and its TL- TROs that you mentioned earlier. Um, I think that will feed through in the data in later this spring and in the summer. And expectations in Europe, I think, are so low right now that there will be a little bit of a turn that, that uh, should give markets a uh, boost.
1: What's leading what here? Is it the macroeconomic news that's sort of increasing fears or is it actually the geopolitics is now turning our attention back to the macro to say is there a supportive factor? I mean you've been covering this for a long time. What do, you, what do you think is the leading factor?
2: I think the politics drive the very long-term framework in which we all operate but anybody who makes an investment in a stock or a bond is looking to see whether their discounted cash flows will arrive in time and at the right expected level. So I think it's much more the cycle, much more the economics, much more the monetary and the fiscal decisions. Obviously, the trade, the global order, uh, concerns about Venezuela, Iran, etc., play into the global fabric and how you think about long-term decisions. How do you think about the relationship between the United States and Europe, between the United States and China? But I think investors are really so focused on this. If idea. you're
1: saying if we were at a better point in the cycle, then we wouldn't be so worried about this trade spat with China. And Brexit, even. We had much better growth levels that we were coming off.
2: Well, I don't think it's I think it's important to worry about these things, um, the political things, uh, particularly Brexit, particularly China. But I think in terms of markets and how investors view things, it's much more. How are we doing in the cycle? Where are profit margins? Are there signs of inflation? Are we getting policy support from fiscal and monetary authorities?
0: Thank you for listening to Squawkbox Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to
1: CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.